Welcome to The Indigenous Approach, a podcast where we examine the role of the nation's premier partnership force across the competition continuum, from cooperation to conflict and everything in between. Hello, I'm Chaplain Chris Dickey, and I'm honored to serve the exceptional warriors and families of First Special Forces Command as their chaplain. I want to welcome you to this special podcast on a topic that has touched each of us as leaders, as members of the profession of arms, as human beings. Before I introduce our special guest who is joining me for this podcast, let me begin by bringing you back to early October 1993. On 3 October 1993, a special operations task force headquartered in Mogadishu initiated a mission intended to last no more than an hour that became an overnight standoff and rescue operation extending into the daylight hours of 4 October 1993. Fighting lasted through the night to defend the survivors of two helicopter crashes, including the insertion of two special operators who would be posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. Task force and coalition casualties would included 19 American soldiers who were killed in action and 73 who were wounded. With Malaysian forces suffering one death and seven wounded, and Pakistani forces suffering one death and two injuries. Today we remember and we honor each warrior and each family impacted by these events. Three words have come to describe these events, Black Hawk Down, from the excellent book and movie. What happened after the smoke cleared? How do we honor our fallen teammates and friends? What do we do with the pain and the hole in our lives that a loss creates? How do we greet those we have lost and move forward in a healthy and honorable way. Today, we want to talk about these very important questions, and I'm excited to be joined by my friend, Jeff Struker. Jeff retired as an Army chaplain in 2011. Prior to his service as a chaplain, Jeff was an infantryman and a leader in the 75th Ranger Regiment and was a leader on the ground who survived the events of early October 1993. Jeff, it is great to see you, my friend, and to be with you today. It was great to be with you this morning for the National Prayer Breakfast. Thank you so much for investing your time with us today. Chris, it is great to be with you again, and thanks for the opportunity to be part of this podcast. Now, super awesome. It's been uh, probably uh, about 10 years at least, So, and I think the last time I saw you in person was actually in Normandy. We figured that out for Task Force Normandy back in the day, so that was a great, great event. So, Jeff, as we begin our conversation, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, kind of what's uh, going on in your life right now? Yeah, I married my high school sweetheart. We had a long-distance relationship for the first couple of years in the Army, but basically, we're still married today. We have five grown children. I didn't know it at the time, but when I deployed to Somalia, she was pregnant with our first child, and I learned about it in a letter that showed up on the back of a C-5 early in the deployment to Somalia. Our children are now grown. I've got two adult daughters that are still living at home, but three sons that have already moved out. And two of the children are married. I've got four grandchildren. Man, I feel like an old man just saying that out loud. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. You look like an old man, Jeff. No, I'm just kidding. You You do not look like an old man. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. I've read the book. I've seen the movie, and as many listening have as well. By the way, uh, the casting director for the film did a great job as the actor playing you uh, in the movie. Looks a lot like you. So today, almost 28 years later, what do you remember most about the events of early October 1993? Well, first, thanks for pointing out that Brian Van Holt looks like me because my mother even called me and said, they cast a guy who looks a lot like you. How did that happen? 
I was a squad leader in Mogadishu. We showed up there in the late June, early July, but our job was to go get this rebel warlord leader. I don't think any of us from Task Force Ranger knew how complex this would become. So we're three months into it, still looking for ID, taking down some pretty big fish in the pond. And a couple of things that I remember very distinctly leading up to the big battle is President Clinton is getting hammered by the news media for the escalation of forces and the escalation of deaths in Somalia. People are starting to call it another Vietnam. And his administration is putting a lot of pressure on our task force. Go get ID'd. Get out of there as fast as you can. And so we launch a mission to go get ID'd. This mission, like you just described, is supposed to take about 30 minutes. Blackhawks start getting shot down. Humvees are getting shot to pieces 18 hours later. Roughly half of the guys that are on the city streets with me are killed or wounded. And during the course of that entire firefight, all of us, I don't know a guy who survived who didn't have the same general attitude that I did. All of us felt like, I'm going to die. Not going to make it out of the city streets. Tonight is the night. So for me, I had this very strong Christian faith. My faith had a profound impact on me. But probably what had a bigger impact, and I hope we get a chance to get to this in a minute, is the events after the big firefight was over with. But to just summarize, most of you special operators that are out there listening to this, for those 18 hours, I'm doing what you guys are doing in the middle of a firefight. I'm just reacting to the enemy that's in front of me, trying to make smart decisions that doesn't cost somebody their life, and totally convinced every moment of that night, I'm not going to see the light of day. So that's kind of the 18 hours of the fight in a nutshell. Yeah, and it started in your vehicle and losing one of your teammates. Yeah. The first guy from Task Force Ranger killed. We've already had a couple of guys wounded in earlier firefights, but when the helicopters go in and and Rangers are fast roping in, one of them misses the rope, is critically wounded, and I get dispatched with my squad, about 10 Rangers on two Humvees, to get Todd Blackburn, this wounded Ranger, back to the base. And as you just mentioned, on the way back, I come through this intense gunfight, almost surrounded by hundreds of enemy fighters, and it's point blank range, 10 feet away. And Dominic Pilla, who was a machine gunner sitting in the back seat of my Humvee, we've taken off the back hatch, taken off the back doors, put some sandbags in there, and we're trying to turn it into a gun platform. And Dominic Pilla is about 12 inches from me when he gets shot in the forehead and killed instantly. And I have to make that call that's portrayed in the movie Black Hawk Down pretty accurately. Hey, Pilla's dead. And the whole assault net goes silent because everybody starts to realize, "Uh uh-oh, this is getting out of control and could be me next. How did leaders take care of you and and your fellow uh, leaders uh, when you've been in combat, particularly maybe in Task Force Ranger? Yeah, one of the moments that I will never forget, in fact, one of the unsung heroes that really should have been portrayed in the movie Black Hawk Down was our battalion liaison officer. At the time, we had dispatched him to go be our liaison with the 10th Mountain Division that was on the other side of the city. His name was Craig Nixon. Major Nixon came over to our compound. He was doing a little bit of staff work, getting ready to go back over to the 10th Mountain. And by the way, we were doing a big barbecue and he was coming over for the good food before we launched this day. So Nixon is in the operations center when we launched, when I go out there with the rest of the assault force and when Dominic Pilla is killed. And when I come back and I'm dropping off dead and I'm dropping off wounded and I get dispatched to go back out because we've just put the CSAR package in on the first crash site. We don't have anybody who can go to the second crash site. Struker, you get your guys on your Humvees and you roll out to the second crash site. 
and recover whoever's alive there. And Craig Nixon walked up to me, pulled me off to the side, because I'm kind of leading this patrol at this point, second time back in the city. And Nixon says, hey, I need to talk to you for a second, Sergeant. He said, you know that I was in Panama with you, right? And I said, yeah, I know that, sir. He's like, did you know that I led a company that got into a firefight? And then we went right back into the same area. And he actually got wounded, received the Purple Heart um, and a Valorous Award from the invasion of Panama. And he said, Jeff, it's one thing to go into combat not knowing what you're going to experience and just react. It is a whole nother thing to go right back into what you just came out of, knowing exactly what you're going to go through. Then Nixon said something that I wasn't thinking, and I needed to hear it. He said, Jeff, I've been there. And I can tell you, your men are looking at you right now, and they need to hear from you. You need to go talk to them before you roll out there. And I don't know why. I guess I was so busy, so focused, cleaning up Humvees, you know, reloading, refitting, getting ready to roll out there that I didn't even think about him. And I turned around and I looked, and sure enough, all of them were looking at me with eyes like saucers, like, are we really about to do this? Because if we do this, this is a suicide mission. We're all going to die. And I just grabbed a little folding chair, stood up on it, talked to them for a second, and then loaded up those Humvees. But I wouldn't have had that conversation if there wasn't a guy who had already been in those shoes, knows exactly what it feels like, and hey, now that you're in these shoes, you need to learn from me. And it was a 10-second conversation that I really needed to hear, and my men needed to hear it from me. You talk about this in your book. Everyone was afraid. It's, it's what you do with that fear. Yeah. Um, did, was, was that a moment that that solidified yeah. that for you? Yeah. I mean, this scene is depicted very quickly in Black Hawk Down, but it's one of those, hey, you know who we are. We're Rangers. You know what we swear to one another that we're going to do. Never leave a fallen comrade. We're rolling back out there to find the Durant crash site. And by the way, most of us are probably going to die, but it's not an option not to roll back out there. So... Get on the Humvees and do your job. Honestly, I wasn't that abrupt with the conversation. The conversation was more like, I'm scared to death right now. My guess is the rest of you guys are too, but we've got a job to do. So get on the Humvees. And I need as many shooters as I can. So cooks, intel analysts, you know, the ammunition dudes, jump on the Humvees. If you got a gun, get on the Humvees. But what I needed was a seasoned warrior that has already been in those shoes who could look me in the eyes and tell you, hey, this is what you need to do next, man. And you really can't read that in a book. You need to have been there and done it in order to help a guy who's now right there and about to do it, know what to do next. Yeah, just every year, and, and as you and I I spoke, uh, you know, recently, just every year you maintain connection, but every year, you know, you th- obviously in early October, you think about, you know, Dominic and, and, and the rest of your teammates. Um, thanks so much for sharing that. The questions about grief and recovery that I introduced earlier are so important and so relevant to those who are listening to this podcast. Jeff, how did you and your fellow special operators work through, um, you know, you go from this intense firefight of your life, perhaps. You had been in combat before, you had been in combat since, but perhaps never, as you noted this morning, never anything like this. How how did you work through the grief of losing your teammates and, and your friends? Yeah. Well, a couple of things that I think I would mention. One, the smoke didn't clear very quickly for us. One of the things that was a bit different about this fight, and most of folks that are listening to this, if you were alive, you remember this. The images that made the world news was helicopters are overrun, 
some of the guys that are the crew and the uh, guys that are in the backseat of that helicopter are carted away, dragged through the city streets, being mutilated on the nightly news as they're being dragged through the city streets. And the next morning, when we make it back to the nearest UN base, we literally don't know who's dead, who's wounded, and who's missing. I learned about the guys that were still missing. I learned about them while everybody else in America learned about them, well, around the world, by watching the same footage the BBC and CNN and everybody else was showing of those bodies being dragged through the streets. And I'm watching it at the base on the airfield, and we're all leaning into the big screen TV trying to identify tattoos or some kind of body marking that will tell me who this is. About 12 or 18 hours in, we we get notified that Mike Duran is still alive and now a prisoner of war. And so for us, there was no real recovery reset. It was immediately get your kid on and get ready to go. As soon as we know where the bodies are, we're going to go recover the bodies. As soon as we can identify Durant, we're launching, no questions asked, basically no notice, we're going to Durant. And so for all of us, Durant was hostage for about 11, almost 12 days. And for all of us during that two-week period, it was a be ready at a moment's notice to go launch out there and to go get Mike Durant, which really shortcut the just the emotional and psychological stress that you just went through like it's not over it ain't over till we get all the bodies back and the bodies didn't start showing up for five or six days and when they did they started showing up in pieces like hey we need more than just a leg we need the whole thing back you got to give us the whole body back kind of thing so it never really happened I think like you and I were saying on the phone not long ago, for me, I don't think I really ever recovered or reset from it until we actually made it back to the States quite some time after it was over with and did the big battalion memorial. And that for me felt like the moment that I was actually able to grieve. Up to then, it was just do your job. You got a job to do because there are still warriors out there and still bad guys to kill. Yeah. So you stayed and you and the whole task force has stayed at this level of intense readiness and, and, you know, intensity, if you will, just ready, as you, as you noted, just in a moment's notice to go back yeah. as you did, you did go back yeah. um, multiple times, but for different missions. So thanks so much, Jeff, for sharing that. So when you did get back and were able to have a, a collective memorial, you mentioned doing, you know, a brief memorial there at the yeah. airfield and, uh, and certainly that was memorable. What was the hardest part for you and your teammates after the smoke cleared? Yeah, for me, I feel like, and I'm not saying this just because I retired as an Army chaplain, because at this point, I'm an NCO. All I ever want to do is kick indoors and kill bad guys. That's what God made me to do, and I'm going to do it for the rest of my life. So for me, I had this rock-solid faith that became like a spiritual foundation that helped me process what I just went through. And I'm saying this on purpose because for me, I was able to kind of wrestle emotionally, psychologically, and I really believe it's because I had the spiritual foundation to do this, to wrestle with the loss that I just saw. But I'm talking really senior guys who had been in the special operations community for a long, long time were not wrestling with it well. In fact, what they were doing was not good, not healthy. And many of them, I don't even understand why me, but many of them were coming up to me and they were talking to me and asking me questions about, Jeff, how was it that you were able to stay so calm last night during that firefight? Jeff, why is it that you don't seem as distraught Shaking, about what yeah. just happened? Basically, they were saying, hey, Jeff, what happens to me if I get on a helicopter or a Humvee and I catch a bullet in the chest? 
it seems like from watching you and listening to you over the radio that you have something that I don't have. And Jeff, I want to know what it is. And Chris, for me, that was a very definitive moment in my life where I felt God throw me into a radically new direction that I never considered before this. And frankly, probably would have never considered if it wasn't for Somalia. God just started to reveal to me, didn't use a audible voice, but basically started to show me, Jeff, I want you to do something different with the rest of your life. Other guys can kick in doors and kill bad guys, and they should do that. You need to help people that are struggling emotionally, psychologically, but more than that, you need to help them spiritually because your friends are not ready for eternity, and you are. And that, for me, was the real deal. Yeah. Matter of fact, I mean, you, you wrote a book, really, that kind of captured this, uh, The Road to Unafraid, which really talks about that moment and obviously more that transformation in you and then what God did subsequently through you. Yeah. So that's that's awesome. Yeah. You know, when the guys that were showing up, the actors were coming to get ready to start filming Black Hawk Down, and I didn't know that somebody was going to play me. If they played me, I didn't think that they would use the real name. Frankly, I'm not completely over the fact that the Army gave permission for somebody to use my name in a major motion picture. But there's an actor who's playing me in Black Hawk Down, and he shows up on Fort Benning, and the Ranger Regiment's going to give him a, a little bit of training before they start to film the movie. The guy's name is Brian Ben Holt, as I mentioned. I get a chance to talk to him for maybe an afternoon before they leave to go film the movie, and Brian says, Jeff, I have a question, and I need your help with it. Before I go do this, talk to a bunch of Rangers that were on the ground with you, and every one of them said the same thing, and I need to know, is this true? He basically said, when everybody else around there said that they were totally terrified, they all said, you seemed like you were completely calm. How is that even possible? And I said, Brian, the answer is I was 100% convinced that I was going to die and also 100% convinced about what eternity holds for me, what happens to you after you die. So I didn't have this uncertainty or this unknown that everybody else was feeling, and that's I'm not better trained. I didn't do anything better than anybody else. I just had something that they didn't have. And that's why I was able to respond the way that I did. To his credit, man, he did a great job. But Brian kind of used that throughout his scenes in the movie to just depict, here's what the guy said it was like, and I'm, I'm going to try to play it honestly. Yeah. So no, That's good. That's good. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. And in his great book, A Grief Observed, in describing his journey and his own pain in losing his wife, C.S. Lewis describes grief as a long, winding road with each bend in the road revealing a completely new landscape. Jeff, can you speak to this analogy? And, and certainly it's been 28 years, yeah. a very long, winding road. Can you speak to that analogy and just, you know, in your personal journey and then the journey as you've journeyed this path with your teammates? Yeah, yeah certainly Lewis nailed it with this one. And this brilliant British author from Oxford University would use language like this. I would call it a brutal road march with a heavy rucksack that seems like it's never going to end. And as soon as you get over one hill and think you're almost at the finish line, there's another bigger hill behind it. That's what grief feels like to me. And I think I want to say that to you because if you're listening to this podcast and you've been through some stuff, and my guess is everybody listening to it's been through some stuff. And you're saying to yourself, when does the pain end? When do I stop thinking about what happened to me? When do I go back to the guy or the gal that I was before that big traumatic incident or before that big fight? You're not going to like this answer, but the answer is it doesn't in some cases end and you never go back to who you were. 
So I, I try to tell people it's like a long road march. Now the load gets lighter and the road gets smoother, but you you're on that road for a long, long time, maybe for the rest of your life. Please don't take the shortcut because you're on this hard road. What I'm trying to tell you is it will get easier. Um, the memories will start to fade and the pain will start to diminish and the struggles, although they're very real, will still be there. And you never really go back to the person you were before this, but you can become better. You can grow stronger. You can let this make you into a better person. It doesn't have to destroy your life. So the challenge with grief is, okay, how do I carry this rucksack for the rest of my life? And how do I carry it well without letting it destroy me and destroy my families? And Lewis, I think, has nailed it. I would just call it a long road march that sucks really bad. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you have to have a good ranger buddy, and you cross-level yeah. your load. Yeah, And you continue the journey together, yeah. uh, to, to use that analogy. So, so Jeff, in your long career in uniform, what, what are some of the unhealthy and, un- and harmful ways that soldiers have dealt with their grief that you've observed? Some of my friends that were in Somalia took the shortcut to getting rid of grief, and they put a bullet in their head. Some of them said, I can't do this anymore, and quite literally checked themselves into army hospitals, into the mental ward, and said, hey, I can't be trusted with my bootlaces or with my belt. I'm going to kill myself. I need real help. But the truth is, many of them, not all of them, but many of them tried to kill themselves slowly over time, and they basically just tried to do it through alcohol or through a drug addiction, prescription pills, or something like that, and they were essentially using something to mask the pain. I just want the pain to go away. Yeah, the problem is getting hammered drunk tonight may make the pain go away tonight, but tomorrow morning it's right back with a throbbing headache and an empty wallet. And in the long run, you didn't make anything better. You just made it worse. So man, I've seen my friends, and I I don't use this phrase lightly, try to kill themselves over time. And, And I've seen plenty of them, you know, take the short path here. And I'm trying to tell you, it's a long, hard road, but it's a road worth walking. And if you're thinking, I don't know if I want to walk that road, well, what option do you have? So walk that road. Find a buddy that, like you just said, a ranger buddy, an SF partner that will come alongside you. But walk that road and don't turn to the bottle or a bullet to make the pain go away because it ain't working. You're just transferring your pain on your family if you take the shortcut. Many of the men and women who listen to this podcast have seen their friends die or or be seriously wounded, and they're struggling time now with guilt and anger and grief. As a warrior who's been there and worked through that dark valley, what what would you say to them today? Yeah, I'd say, man, what the nation has asked of you is a—I'm going to use this phrase very carefully. I hope you're leaning and listen right now. It is a terrible— privilege. It's terrible what the nation has placed on your shoulders, this heavy load. But it's also a privilege to be part of the profession of arms, to be able to sacrifice for our way of life, to say, I am a stockholder in the future and the freedom of our country, and it's cost me greatly. And so I want you to some degree, Shakespeare's famous St. Crispin's Day quote, you roll up your sleeves on those anniversaries and you show off those scars and you say, I was part of this band of brothers and sisters. I had the privilege to serve alongside and stand in the same formation with some of the greatest people on planet Earth. And yeah, we all sacrificed a lot, but man, I'm a better man for it. Yeah, absolutely. And we're a better country for it. Those scars, they depict a job well done. 
and uh, you know a sacrifice well lived as we prepare to to transition in different places around the world that we've been that you and I were in in, in 2003 so thanks for that and uh, thanks for that encouragement is there anything maybe specifically you would speak to leaders yeah the one thing I think I would like to say to leaders especially leaders that are in combat and kind of carrying a heavier rucksack there's an extra rock in your rucksack that the others in your unit don't have to carry that's the load of leadership don't place an impossible standard on yourself and the grief that can go along with that is really debilitating. So I'm thinking specifically of that leader who thinks in the back of their mind, maybe they don't say it out loud, but in the back of their mind, they're thinking, well, all of my boys are well-trained and they're really effective and we're going to bring everybody home. And I think to myself, that is a real dangerous way to go into combat because I hope to God you do bring everybody home. But the statistics say that might happen. And as a leader, you need to be ready for that before it happens or else that grief can become overwhelming. You will feel like I failed when I didn't bring anybody home. And I like to remind leaders, this is war. And in the fine print of going to war, somebody is probably going to die. Highly likely, it might be me or somebody around me. Enemy has a vote, yeah. Yeah, and I think a leader needs to go to war saying, I'm going to do everything that is humanly possible to bring everybody home, but it might not happen. And I'm ready for that before we step foot on the battlefield. One of the reasons that chaplains exist is to honor the fallen, as you know, Jeff, firsthand. As a matter of fact, this morning when you were speaking, the sun was coming through the window. I don't know if, if you yeah, know. I noticed that. Guys were squirming to try to get well, out of the sunlight. I, you know, it brought me back to um, to the hangar in Kandahar, yeah. to that memorial yeah. ceremony. Do you remember that? I remember it well. Yeah. And the sun was coming through the exact same yeah. way, and you were standing up there. How did you honor your fallen special operators? Uh, That's a great question, and I think most people may be surprised by this answer. One, I don't stand up and grieve a death as much as I celebrate a life. Like, God, thank you for making guys and gals like this that are willing to give that, and thank you for giving me the chance to serve next to them. Um, And of course, we're going to fire the volleys, we're going to play taps, we're going to fold the flag, we're going to give them all that the nation can do and should do to honor them. But personally, this may be my 11 Bravo kicking indoors in the Ranger Regiment background. I really believe the greatest thing that we can do to honor them is to go out and kill bad guys and accomplish the mission because that's what sent us here in the first place. So let's go get back after it with all of the you know energy that we have. This morning, you spoke to hundreds of leaders across Fort Bragg at the National Prayer Breakfast. In these tumultuous days for our nation and our Army, what did you share and what would you share to the audience listening today? Yeah. Well, what I shared this morning, because it was a prayer breakfast and we were talking about the National Day of Prayer, I talked about prayer, and I talked about a prayer of desperation. And by that, I mean a prayer where you say, God, I'm in big trouble. No one and nothing can bail me out. If you don't step in, there's no hope. But a prayer for desperation that's not thrown up there like a Hail Mary pass at the end of the game, like, I don't know if he's going to catch this or not. Rather, the kind of prayer that says, I know how strong he is. I know how much uh, my, I know my relationship with him, and I know he's going to come through for me. Because if he doesn't, nobody else can. That's kind of what I shared this morning. I think what I'd like for the folks listening to the podcast to hear is, listen, you have the same privilege, terrible privilege, as I called it a second ago, of all of those warriors that have gone before you in the 
history of this country. And the last thing on earth that you should do when you get ready to separate yourself from the unit or when you leave the service is cut yourself off from them. What you need, Chris, what I needed in Afghanistan, you provided for me. When I was frustrated and disappointed and just kind of hitting a low spot, you were right there for me at a chapel in Kandahar early in the war. And without you, I probably would have done something really stupid. So I think I'm suggesting to the folks listening to this podcast, look, lock arms, link up with a guy or a gal or two that have been where you've been, done what you've done, and walk with them through the rest of your life together. That relationship will do a lot of good over a long period of time. Yeah, amen. That's great guidance for a mission. That's great guidance for life. We get there together. I like the I love the word together to get there, to get there together, to get there. Whatever there is. Yeah. The completion, the successful completion of a mission, the the raising of a healthy family, the transition into retirement, whatever mm-hmm. there looks like to get there. We get there together. And so, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're not alone. Uh, you're a member of a team, and uh, we complete the mission on the battlefield and in life together. You've got a great team of chaplains. You've got a great team of behavioral health professionals. You've got your buddies on your team. You have your family. You have your leadership. If you need a ranger buddy, as Jeff mentioned earlier, if you need someone to sh- to come alongside you and walk a difficult path with you, please reach out and cross-level some of that load and enable them to, uh, to walk with. And together, you will get to the end of that mission together. I think, uh, Jeff, anything else? No, we're good, man. Thanks for the chance to speak with you guys, and I hope this podcast uh, helps a lot of dudes along the way. So with that, Jeff, thank you so much on behalf of the CG. Major General Brennan, CSM Munter, Command Chief Warrant Officer Gronowski, our whole command team, all the CSU commanders, thanks so much for being with me and our team. Thanks to the PAO team that quartered this. Thanks for being with us. Many, many uh, awesome moments together downrange, and uh, just thanks for being my friend. God bless you as you lead your church and continue to care for military families in Georgia and over the Internet around the world. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll end this podcast. Thanks so much. This has been The Indigenous Approach. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. Follow us on social media, and if you have suggestions for topics or guests, send us a message. Thank you for listening.